Welcome to the Light Switch Podcast by Luminate Student Ministry, a place for the skeptic, the Bible believer, as well as everyone in between. As you know, our world is often in the dark. Our hope is to flip the switch on topics surrounding biblical engagement, apologetic arguments, spiritual formation, and emotional wellness. We want Jesus Christ to illuminate every aspect of your life so that you can shine the light of Christ in every situation. Hey everybody, this is Pastor Matthew, and I am here for our first apologetics episode. Um, And we actually have Randy Pister back with us today. Good morning. Good morning. So this is our third episode overall. Um, Randy, you are our fourth episode. Um, This is our first apologetics episode. Uh, Randy, you actually joined us for our first biblical engagement episode, uh, which was our last episode, um, where we talked about uh, truly God and Mm -hmm. truly human. Um, And so that was a super fun episode, talked about how Jesus could be truly God and truly human. Those episodes are about helping you engage your Bible, right, to understand the things that it talks about in the Bible, to understand all of those um, intricacies and the importance of, of, of that work. The apologetics episodes that we're doing right now, these are a different thing, right? Randy, you have a master's degree in apologetics mm-hmm. um, uh, from Biola? Yep. No, Talbot. Yeah. yeah, Talbot School of Theology located at Biola University in yeah. California. Yeah. And so apologetics, oh, um, as correct me if I'm wrong, but you would say apologetics and biblical engagement are different. Yes. Yeah. Um, One's more pastoral. The, the former is more pastoral. The latter is more. It's it's sort of the, it's called the handmaiden of evangelism. Yeah, exactly. What we're trying to do here with our apologetics is this is our this is how we want to engage culture. We want to offer questions, uh, pose questions, if you will, and then help answer those questions. That's what apologetics is. Um, it's based on the Greek word apologia, uh, which means to provide a defense or to offer a response or um, to literally apologize for, but that's not the right term. I think that that's lost on us because usually yep. we think, uh, oh, I'm so sorry for this, and that's not what we're doing. <laughs> so when it comes to apologetics, we want to be able to provide an, a defense for the hope that we have. Uh, it's, is it Second Peter? It's Second Peter 3.16, right? First uh, Peter 3.15. For 3.15, yeah. First yeah. Peter 3.15. I had the chapter right and the Peter part. <laughs> Yeah, you're the author, right? Yeah, yeah. Just, and I am the pastor. Yep, that's <laughs> perfect. Just say it is written. It is written. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but boy, it better be in the Bible if you say that. <laughs> yep. Um, so that's our hope is to be able to provide an answer for our hope. And that's what these podcasts about apologetics will ultimately do is uh, provide those responses to what culture criticizes from the Christian worldview. Um, we will be bringing in resources, we'll be bringing in academic studies, we'll be bringing in uh, uh, even podcasts and other things that are relevant. Uh, Sean McDowell has an awesome apologetics podcast where he tackles ideas of theology and apologetics. Uh, There are hundreds of resources out there, uh, thousands of resources out there that talk about apologetics. And so we are just one of those, uh, but we really want to tackle um, this from a more philosophical framework. Uh, and so that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be talking a lot about philosophy, a lot about theology, 
Um, and that's what we do in these these episodes. That by nature requires us to be a little more dense in our content. Would you agree, Randy? Yeah, and just a couple of can I jump in real quick? Yeah, yeah, just a couple of quick thoughts. I mean, it's it's not um, it's not being intellectual for the sake of stroking one's ego. Just just yes. for, for for the sake of it, just three things come to mind. One, you know, the Lord's command to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yeah. Uh, Romans twelve to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I think of Paul's words in Second Corinthians ten. He says, um, verse five: We de- we demolish arguments mm-hmm. and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient. To Christ, so yes. the, the goal is to uh, fairly um, analyze the Christian worldview and other worldviews and compare them. And you know, philosophy um, has sort of a bad rap. Uh, it's but it's it's really just a tool. It's a it's a means of looking at something below the surface or examining my, that which may seem you know so familiar as to as to have gone without really ever being noticed or studied, and sort of taking the roof off and examining. The structure of, of worldviews, of arguments, of what what culture is doing. So it's it sounds scary, it sounds opaque yeah. or dense, or and, and it can be that at times. But we'll do we'll do our part to make sure it's it's intelligible yeah. and, and not go needlessly into the weeds, correct, um, yeah. or lose the the trees for the forest. So. Absolutely, yeah. But just understand that these uh, resources are things that well, mainly Randy, but. We have poured over, we have talked about, um, Randy and I have been uh, talking endlessly just as friends, but also as fellows in ministry and trying to figure out the next uh, best thing for our students, our parents, our congregants, um, and how to best deal and wield in this battle for the hearts and minds and and lives of our students. So we're so glad to have you. And I personally am so glad to have you, Randy. Uh, Good to be here. Yeah, man. It's so cool to have uh, a resource like this as a pastor. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to so many friends who have been like, what does this guy do? And I'm like, I honestly, I don't even actually know. He's just really, really smart. (laughs) I'm not. I just just read too many books. I'm Fun. The Amazon driver comes to my house far too often. <laughs> That's incredible. Um, okay, so now that you kind of have an overview of what we're trying to do within this apologetics uh, idea, let's really quickly, um, Randy, you have like five books in front of you. Is that correct? Four? Four. Yep. Four books. Okay. Um, let's really quickly give you those titles. Um, of the resources that we're using. We'll also put these in the show notes. Uh, but just so you guys know, this is a podcast. So in case we go too fast, you can rewind. <laughs> All right, so the, the first book is by Douglas Gruthais. It's spelled G-R-O-O-T-H-U-I-S. He's a philosopher at Denver Seminary. Uh, it's his book, Christian Apologetics, second edition. And I'll be looking at the the chapter on truth defined and defended. Yeah. There's William Lane Craig and J.P. Morland's uh, magisterial tome, Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview. Hold on, hold on. He is. I like how you said that. His magisterial tome. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a very large, dense book. But I was told by one apolo- professional apologist, if you read this book cover to cover, you'll have like half of a master's in apologetics. You'll have yeah, just so much of what you need. Right. To, to understand, and it covers a lot of topics, but 
There's a section in the book on postmodernism. We will actually be referencing that in a lot of our apologetics and philosophical arguments throughout today and even further episodes. So, yeah. There's the evidence that demands a verdict. Now, this Mm -hmm. is the the most updated and expanded version. I think it's version three, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. It's by Josh and Sean McDowell. Sean, Mm -hmm. you know, got famous decades ago for writing this. Or sorry, Josh did, uh, Sean's father. uh, And they kind of co-authored it and updated it together. And then a really new book. I highly recommend um, by Watkin, W-A-T-K-I-N, called Biblical Critical Theory. It came out, I don't know, maybe three, four weeks ago. But Christopher Watkin, it's Zondra Van Academic. Actually, main, but, I haven't even bought that yet. I need to pick that book up. That's but, a good one. But mainly I'll be pulling from um, the first three books Yeah. as, as cool. needed. Perfect. And, yeah, and just so you guys know, um, I also have uh, Christian Theology, third edition by Millard Erickson and then uh, pardon me I'm moving books over here so you might hear that in the microphone but uh, and then also the rise and triumph of the modern self by Carl R. Truman Um, uh, there are a couple um, areas in there the Truman book the rise and triumph of the modern self is actually an is almost an entire indictment of postmodernism but I don't know if he even uses the term postmodern a uh, postmodernism in the book, so uh, I can't more highly recommend this book as an understanding of what our current culture is going through. So yeah, um, and then Randy, you had one resource, and I don't maybe you already said it, but it was the resource that we scanned the apologetic uh, preliminaries? Was that the what book was this from? That was from Gurthice. Gurthice, okay. Yeah, the second uh, edition yeah. of Christian Apologetics. Yeah, nice, good. Yeah, okay, so um, you kind of know that these words are not necessarily our own, but these are well-researched and um, articulated uh, ideas that we want to tackle. And so, all right, um, man, thanks for sticking with us this far. Uh, Before we, uh, well, not before, let's jump in, yeah? Yep. All right, so we're talking about this idea. The title of this podcast is Postmates and Postmodernity. Is it modernity? Yeah, I can never say that well. Postmodernity. I sound like I have a speech impediment every time I do it. So, um, But a lot of people, Randy, don't even know what postmodernism is. So before everybody shuts the podcast off, because they're like, we don't, I don't want to hear about this. Mm. Why Why should they care about this topic? Yeah, yeah that's a great question. I, I think the – I'll kind of give a, a two-part answer. It's One, I think it's it's good to have a, um, a self-examined life and to understand the world in which you live. I gave you the, the example of, you know, imagine you're a fish. It, it's good once in a while to just examine the water that you inhabit. Yeah. Um, just, you know – Something can become so familiar, not as to breed contempt, but as to just go unnoticed. And so it's really worthwhile to examine the the cultural waters in which you're swimming that might be very familiar and just to have an examined, thought out, careful worldview. Secondly, I I think if you want to understand the acrimony, the the conflict, the discord across political lines, ideological lines, worldview lines, religious lines, cultural lines, you name it, postmodernism is at the root of... I don't want to say all of it, but yeah. maybe all of it, certainly a significant portion of it. Um, so if you want to understand the times and the ills, if you're troubled by it, like like many of us are, including yeah. myself, like yeah. 
you know, to, to know, we're seeing the symptoms. If you want to know how to, how to treat the symptoms, you've got to know what the disease is and what the, the appropriate treatment or cure is. And so this is where I think understanding postmodernism, um, which requires some, you know, philosophical analysis is really important. Yeah. So if you're at all troubled by any of what you see in the world today, you should care what, about postmodernism <laughs> because it's, it's at the root. Uh, it might not be the sole root cause, but it's certainly, I think, a root cause of, of much of it. Yeah. Forgive me. Man, I uh, was, I think we might need to throw out these uh, boxes because there's actual, um, what's it called? Insulation. Behind, insulation behind okay. there. And I was cutting it out last night. Oh, and I, you breathed it in. <laughs> I breathed it in. So anyway. <clears throat> no, that's perfect. Yeah, I think it's totally a a good a good illustration. This idea of the fish, right? You had talked about Anna had a fish. Uh, in, in my, when we were dating uh, quite a while ago now, and uh, yeah, I, I got to see her fish tank for the first time, and it was quite darkened and black, and yeah. hadn't really been cleaned in a long, long time. And there was one fish still going, just powering <laughs> on. The rest were were long since flushed down the toilet, and. You know that fish, might this it's like or like the frog in the, the pan. Like yeah. the water heats up, and slowly over time, you don't notice that something has gone toxic, or yeah. the water is not as clean or clear as as Absolutely. it used to be. And yeah. you'll hear, I'll hear you'll, the gener. I'm 39. You know, the generation before me say like, "What's going on in the world? I don't yeah. understand it." What's? Yeah. But I hear young people say that too, and I think yeah. they're both asking a great question. Like the water's changed. Yeah. The things are more toxic. Things are more right. contentious. What? What is going on and why? Yeah, and so what we're tackling in this episode is we're trying to give you an introduction. And it's an introduction because postmodernism is a huge entity in and of itself. It literally, we've talked about this, Randy, you and I, it literally affects, like I love the illustration of the fish in the water because it literally affects even the air we breathe. Um, uh, because because literally, I, and I don't mean that, I, I mean that figuratively, not literally, um, but even uh, in a couple of the examples that I have here, I mean, the reason why the generation above us and even the generation behind uh, ahead of us is all asking the same question is because uh, we've been inundated with this since about the 1700s, right? I mean, you've got these really smart guys, late 1700s, right? You've got mm-hmm. uh, uh, Jean-Jacques uh, 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 Rousseau, Derrida, um, well, I'll be rattling off some names soon. Yeah, okay. So you've got all of these guys, and they're yeah. all basically bringing into question everything. Uh, and it's, so it's not just religion. It's not just authority. It's, it's literally everything in the world is now succumbed to this idea of almost a quicksand. It's the universal solvent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a great way to the say it. The problem is it ends up dissol- dissolving itself, itself, which yeah. we'll, we'll get to. yeah. So, I, I mean, you could even probably say this is such an important topic because it even calls into question meaning and not just meaning of words and language, although it does that, but it also calls into question like your value as a human, my value as a human, mm-hmm. purpose, uh, meaning, integrity, ethics, morals, art, romance. Um, one of the reasons why I love this, uh, this idea of Postmates is because literally postmodernism calls into question the validity of the written word. And so, Randy, if I wrote you a love letter, you could take that very offensively, 
even though I'm meaning it with compliments. Mm-hmm. Because in a postmodern world, you it, the 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 intent or meaning of that the author brings to the 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 letter is null and void, right? Mm-hmm. So literally, yep. even these books, all of these books we're bringing, all have have no meaning anymore because they're all the written word. It really is what, whatever we want it to mean. And, and so this is such an important, uh, an important topic. And for those who are listening, if you care about justice, if you care about, there's a documentary out on, uh, there's a movie out, I think it's on, uh, Amazon and Netflix. And, but if you care at all about the justice for the murder of Emmett Till, you care about in the 1950s, 50, uh, in the 19, in 1955, uh, if you care about at all about the atrocities of 9-11, if you care at all about, um, justice for minorities or justice for identity groups, if you care about any of that, you should care about postmodernism because uh, uh, that calls into question any of those ideas. Uh, Carl Truman actually says ethics becomes a function of feeling. Uh, And uh, Erickson actually says that postmodernism introduces the community to put a, uh, to put a check upon ideas of uh, the the variedness of truth. But what ultimately happens is you run into issues of calling into question Hitler's Nazi Germany, Mao's China, Stalin's Russia. Um, the uh, atrocities of the rape of Nanking, um, you, you couldn't certainly couldn't call into question the, the the ethnic cleansings, if you want to call them that, of the Bible, uh, because that was that was just those people doing what they felt was the right thing to do. Hitler was just doing what he felt was right. Mao was doing what made him happy. Stalin just really didn't like people making jokes about him, and the terrorists of 9/11 were following their truth. And in a postmodern world, we can't call that into question. And um, if you care at all about that, you should continue listening to what we have for you uh, today. Okay, so enough meandering. Let's attack this beast called postmodernism. Randy, what? Give us give us a definition if you can. What is postmodernism? Where did it come from? What is it? So I'm going to try and do that as best I can. I'm going to need to read a few quotes or, or summaries. Okay. Because, yep. So let me start with, with what it is, and then let me, let me get to where it came from. So the, okay. if, if you go back historically, the you know, term has been around in, in other contexts since, like, for example, the 1930s in connection with arts, theater, architecture. Um, it was really, though, in, in, uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard, uh, he may be probably rightfully credited with placing the word postmodern in the philosophical lexicon, in, in other words, introducing that term to philosophy um, with, his, with a work published in 1979. At a really, really, really high level, it's a mood. Uh, it had a lot of work, a lot of use in uh, like English departments and language departments. Wait, before you keep going there, what do you mean mood? Are we talking about uh, emotionally angsty teenager or are we talking about like, what do you mean mood? So let, let me let me explain that. So as a, as a, as a philosophical stint, Standpoint, uh, and I'm, I'm quoting the, the Craig and Morland text here. It says, Postmodernism is primarily a reinterpretation of what knowledge is and what counts as knowledge. More broadly, it represents a form of cultural relativism about such things, and this is a fun list, 
as reality, truth, reason, value, linguistic meaning, the self, and other notions. <laughs> so so kind of key fundamental <laughs> worldview questions. So reality, truth, reason, value, linguistic meaning, the self, and other notions. Let, yeah. me, let me read a slightly longer okay. passage. This so is, stay with us. That was the uh, William Lane Craig's Philosophical Foundations for a, a Christian sure. Worldview. Page 133. Yep. And then this is uh, the Sean McDowell, Josh McDowell, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Yep. Uh, this is a little lengthier of a, qu- of a quote, so stay with us, probably about 15 to 30 seconds. So yeah, this is, a, this is a quote that Sean includes from a cultural historian named Richard Tarnas. He says, what is called postmodern varies considerably according to context. And that's true. It's, it's yeah. a very hard thing to pin down and define. It doesn't, it has some common properties, but in general it's, but he said, in its most general and widespread form, the postmodern mind may be viewed as an open-ended, indeterminate set of attitudes mm. that has been shaped by a great diversity of intellectual and cultural currents. These range from pragmatism, where, just to define that, that that's doing whatever works. Yep. Um, Existentialism, which has to do with questions of meaning and purpose. Yep. Yep. Marxism, as in Karl Marx, yep. um, and his his whole um, framework of you know the the working class versus the bourgeois. Mm-hmm. Um, psychoanalysis, think Sigmund Freud. To feminism, hermeneutics, deconstruction, and post-empiricist philosophy of science. Um, post-empiricist meaning like beyond you know so doing science beyond what's what's empirical or what can be tested. Yeah. To cite only a few of the more prominent. Um, there is an appreciation for the plasticity, or meaning like flexibility, and constant change of reality knowledge. A stress on the prior on the priority of concrete experience over fixed abstract principles, so experience uh, might matter more than truth or facts, yep. and a conviction that no single a priori thought system should govern belief or investigation. It is recognized that human knowledge is subjectively determined mm. by a multitude of factors. And so it reduces Marxism, Christianity, fascism, Stalinism, capitalism, liberal democracy, secular humanism, feminism, Islam, and modern science to the same order and dismisses them all as logocentric, which is a, a term from Jacques Derrida, because they're all what are called totalizing meta narratives. Mm-hmm. And a meta narrative is like a, a grand story that explains all of reality. And that's yeah. one of its distinguishing features. It rejects all meta narratives. Yeah. And that's um, um, if you want a really fun nutshell version. Um, can I keep reading? Sure, yeah. I know there's a lot, and, and I'll, I'll, t- I'll tie this all together. Yep. So you get a lot of names like Frederick Nietzsche, um, Ludwig Wittgenstein, Jacques Derrida, Thomas Kuhn, Michael Foucault. Um, so depending on which postmodernist you're reading, um, they typically affirm that there's no knowable objective reality apart from language and concept. So it's very much a linguistic idea that's, that's kind of tied to its roots. Yeah. So, according to Jean-Francois Lyotard, um, to say that we know objective truth about ultimate issues sets up a meta-narrative that is intrinsically oppressive and exploitative. Mm. According to Stanley Fish, uh, various interpretive communities define their own truth. Um, according to Jacques Derrida, texts, whether religious or otherwise, do not have any fixed objective meaning. Therefore, they are neither true nor false in themselves. Mm. There's no like privileged authorial position. The interpreter gets to decide what a text means. Um, according to Richard Rorty, who's a pragmatist, truth is what our colleagues will let us get away with. Um, or if you're Michael Foucault, um, truth is what the power structures deem to be so. There's no God's eye view of anything. Mm-hmm. Therefore, there is no, some would say there's no objective truth. Other would say there, truth is all relative. It's what works. Other, others might say, that, well, fine, there could be objective truth, but we have no way of knowing it. We're all yeah. trapped in language. Yeah. Um, so they would all affirm that if there is objective truth, we can't know it. Yeah. 
Oh, and just really quickly, because we're all trapped in language. What he means by that is he means that uh, what we mean by a cup of coffee in in Africa, they might not know what that means because they're trapped in their language. And so we can try to bring our interpretive schemes together and try to find a fixed space there, but we can't actually know precisely what the other yep. person means because we're all trapped within language. This even goes so far as to say I can't actually genuinely understand what Randy's saying because even Randy has his own style of language and I have my own style of language. So even me and Randy's conversation could be categorized as meaningless because we might not be meaning what the other thinks we're meaning. So we're trapped in these language spaces. How does uh, um, how do they put it? Uh, yeah, we're trapped in our own uh, our own idea of uh, of what we're trying to say, but that is up for debate when it comes to a person hearing me. Um, because the interpretation falls to the hearer, not the speaker. So that's what Randy's uh, correct. Yep. Is that what you mean when yep. you mean we're trapped in these yep. ideas of language? Yeah. Okay. So as far as it being a mood, um, or uh, just a, a sense of the world, there are, I guess two kind of big takeaways. One, well, at least two. One is um, a concern about you know using language to um, have power over someone. It's it's very concerned with with power and oppression. Yeah. Um, and I'm skipping ahead a bit, but you know that's actually something that we, we, you know Christians could absolutely affirm. Yeah, I don't think you need postmodernism t- to get that. That's right. not unique to it. Right. Um, and the other one would be, a, I'd say, a, a, a deep love for autonomy. Mm. Um, so here's what kind of what I mean by by the mood. This is a quote from a case called Planned Parenthood versus Casey from 1992. Um, if you know that, if that name sounds familiar, there was a recent. Very big, very controversial U.S. Supreme Court decision called Dobbs uh, that overturned Roe v. Wade and Planned yep. Parenthood versus Casey. Yep. But this is a very, 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 very famous quote. Yep. Um, it's from only three justices, O'Connor, Kennedy, and Souter, where they say, and this is this was enshrined in constitutional law. Yeah. Um, I remember being shocked reading this and going, this is absolutely postmodern thinking in, in a court case. Yeah. But they say, the heart of liberty is, quote, the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe and of the mystery of human life. Yeah. That's true liberty, the right to define, to, you know, this, this like grand, like creator-like state of being, to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Yep. Now, where did this come from? This is actually not a new idea. The, the term was coined, you know, in 1979, philosophically. Uh, I would say it goes much, much, much Further back into the ancient Greeks, there was a philosopher named Protagoras who claimed that man is the measure of all things. Yep. But I would say this goes ultimately all the way back to the garden in Genesis 3. And I heard Nepal just make that, that, that point once. Um, where, when the serpent says, or asks Eve, did God really say? God had said. It was crystal clear. It was made clear to Adam. Adam had communicated that to Eve. There's some debate on how well did she understand it because she has an extra requirement that you can't touch the fruit, right. which is not what God said. Anyway... Um, I'll leave that to the Genesis 3 commentaries, <laughs> but that, that question, that insidious question, did God really say? Right. You know, again, uh, suspicion, um, concern about what, what counts as knowledge, what counts as truth, reinterpreting an author's words. Right. So the, the postmodern mood, this idea of autonomy, this idea of defining truth for oneself, that's sort of at the heart of it, and it goes back to the Greeks, it goes back to the garden, um, it's found in our, our you know, constitutional jurisprudence here in the U.S. And 
as I just explained, it's it shows up in a lot of contexts on a lot of key issues like reality, truth, reason, value, linguistic meaning, the self, and other important notions of, of reality and life. Yeah. And that's why, as we'll talk about, you see a lot of the conflict that you do today. Because yeah. it basically puts each one of us as the, the our own king or queen of our own point land. Right. We are the arbiter of, uh, of our... Um, the word I'm looking for. We are the arbiter of our land, of our feelings, of our. It's it's that idea of autonomy, right? Now I think that there's just to kind of build off of that. I think there are some good things to postmodernism that we'll get to in just a second. Um, but even to build off of this, you have the the. Um, uh, here it is. Um, I, I'm reading out of um, Carl Truman's uh, "The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self." And take the Supreme Court uh, of the United States and their Brown versus Board of Education um, in 1954. And in in this, it's talking about segregation. And I just want it to be a very very clear: I am not at all an advocate for segregation in any way, shape, or form. However, when you read what the justices wrote as the reason for this, it it, it bolsters that same discussion still. Um, and what it talks about is it talks about, I'll just read you uh, the language of the ruling. Here's what it says. To separate African-American children from others of similar age and qualifications solely because their race generates a feeling of inferiority. Or, I'm sorry, I didn't, say, I didn't read that right. To do that solely because of their race generates a feeling of inferiority as to their status in the community that may affect their hearts, minds in a way unlikely ever to be undone. So while I absolutely agree that this statement is a problem, I don't agree or that this statement is is alluding to a huge issue within the history of the United States. I don't think that this is the right reason to get away from segregation. I think that it is the right reason to get away from segregation is not because it generates feelings of inferior, inferiority. It's because when you segregate a person solely based on their race, you are saying they're inferior. You are making an objective statement. No, you are less than me, so you can't do the things I can do because of the color of your skin. And the problem with that, by saying it generates feelings of inferiority, is, is, is again, promoting the idea that uh, it, it is all about the person's feelings. It's all about the person's arboration of their experience and what's going on. And again, it's a very postmodern way of thinking about ruling and establishing what's right and what's wrong. And so um, this is, again, one of the problems because you can't get mad at Hitler. You can't get mad at Stalin. You can't get mad at Mao in China. You can't get mad at any of these people because they were doing what felt right. They were doing what what was what, what for them was the right idea. Um, and so again, uh, Randy, I appreciate you bringing all of those things in. Um, we've so we've kind of let's let's recap real quickly. Um, but we've chatted about what postmodernism is. Uh, we've talked about um, why we should care about postmodernism. Um, so. Do, really quickly, do you have anything you would like to add in this section uh, for us to consider as we kind of transition towards maybe a critique uh, and an evaluation of postmodernism? No, in terms of yeah, laying out what it is and 
and it's sort of its origins and food yeah. and all that. I think that's great. Enough. And I think it's been spilled and enough words have been said. Yeah. So if you guys want have any other questions about that, feel free to dive into some of these resources. You can read this stuff on your own. Um, and again, we are all about you reaching out to us, talking to us about how we've done. If we, if you feel like we haven't represented it well, please, please reach out to us. You can email me, Matthew at keystonechurch.us. Uh, I would, we would love to take your question and do a questions series, uh, or a questions episode, uh, where we tackle some of these, these critiques of even our stances on this, because I think this gets to our very first good. So let's jump into that, shall we, Randy? Mm-hmm. So let's jump into the good and the bad. The good and the bad of postmodernism. Uh, let's. There, there are so many bad. <laughs> Unfortunately, I, I literally called Randy last night before we did this, and I was like, Randy, is there anything good about this? And luckily, he showed me some, and I, I did some further reading, and I, and I have, I have one, uh, an additional one than what we talked about, yeah. but. Um, Randy, uh, give us William Lane Craig's uh, yep. good. Yeah, so this is on page 139. He says, postmodernists are right to warn He has three things. Postmodernists are right to warn us of the dangers of using language to gain power over others. Yeah. We would agree with that. Yep. To recommend the importance of story and narrative. Yeah. Which, which is also true. And yep. our sacred text is yeah. largely... Um, narrative. Largely yep. narrative. There's some poetry and some yep. prophecy and apoc- yep. all... But, All that. but generally, yeah, it's it's a yeah. it's narrative format. Jesus himself taught in parables, which were yep. narr- uh, um, um, uh, principles and narrative. The Gospels so. are biography. Acts is a work of history. Yep. You got your you know Kings and Chronicles, yep. and and then thirdly, to warn against the historical excesses of scientism mm. and reductionism yep. that grew out of an abuse of modernist ideas. So to yeah. unpack those term, two terms very quickly, scientism is the idea that. And there's a hard and a soft version, and philosophers love to make those distinctions. But <laughs> yeah. essentially, it's the idea that, that science is the best or the only way to truth. Yep. And if it's not scientific, it's it's not a fact, it's not true, it's just a, a feeling or something less less valuable or less important. So science is king. Um, postmodernists reject that, um, and I think they're right to do so. Um, mm-hmm. Science is important as long as it stays within its lane. Science mm-hmm. can tell you – I love um, – uh, j- John uh, Lennox's example: Science yes. can tell science can tell you that adding arsenic to your grandma's tea will kill her. Um, you know, if you're trying to get her inheritance, but it, it can't tell you whether or not it's right or wrong to do so. For that, yeah. we need ethics and, and moral philosophy and Absolutely. and uh, and revelation from God. <laughs> I love that. Wait, wait, hold on. You just glazed over that. John Lennox quote uh, says that arse- science can tell you that arsenic that adding arsenic to your grandma's tea will kill her. Kill her. It, you know, let's say you're trying to get your grandma's inheritance. You're yeah. in her will. You add arsenic to your tea. Science will tell you that that will kill her. Yeah. It doesn't tell you whether or not you should. Yeah. It, it, it knows nothing of of, of beauty of yeah. morality all that stuff. Of course, of course, of course. Um, <laughs> Just a an incredible incredible illustration there. <laughs> and then also the the reductionism and mm. reductionism is the idea that you know just just keep reducing things to the, their most basic elements, and you end up yeah. reducing humans to little more than thinking meat or, right. uh, you know, a, a brain and a brainstem and a nervous right. system, and you lose key elements of personhood or, right. or oh yes, beauty. because they reject essentialism, right? They yep. uh, that's what William Lane Craig even says. Mm-hmm. They reject essential reject essentialism, and just for those who are listening, essentialism is that an entity has, for lack of a better term. Properties. Yeah, I won't even use the term in the definition. Properties that are required for that thing to exist. So, for example, a triangle has to have three sides. Three sides are essential 
to a triangle. Uh, and uh, uh, postmodernism would reject the idea of essentialism. Um, they would reject the laws of logic as Western thinking. Yeah. But what's ironic about that is that they're saying that there is a better way to think. And so it's an either or basis. Yep. It's not or it's it's a it's a, a you can't have both, which is a both and basis. It's either this is true or not. And they would reject and say, no, that's not better. Ours is better. So don't go with that. Go with ours, which is ironic because it's Western logic. Yep. <laughs> so so they're using Western logic to say Western logic doesn't work. Sorry. Uh, so anyway, yeah. and I'll come back to that. And I, yeah. I, I have a fun, really timely example of. Yeah. Of why that doesn't work. So, so, so we're talking about the good. We're talking about the good so, here. So th- those are the three things yeah. um, that he affirmed. But here's the thing. You don't need postmodernism Correct. to get these good things. Correct. They already exist and can be derived entirely from the, the Christian worldview, as Correct. can many, many other net goods and, yeah. and true things. So yeah. it, in other words, postmodernism, the good things about it aren't unique to it. It doesn't bring anything unique to the table. Right. It, right. It's so has so much baggage and it's so problematic that right. it's worth rejecting. Right. The good things can be preserved or, ma- or maintained from the Christian worldview. And I would say probably from other worldviews too, even, you know, like just any monotheistic worldview. Um, So I want to add to that one thing uh, that I think is, is you can still also get, you don't need postmodernism for this, but um, I'm doing a lot. This is a much more pastoral uh, element. I'm doing a lot of study and research in what it means to be an intentional parent because I'm growing up. I have little kids um, and, and, I, I want my son and my daughter um, right now and any other kids that God were to grace us with uh, to uh, to grow up being able to think and reason and but also to have grace and to know what it means to be gentle and lowly and humble, but also to take pride in the things that they do and and all of these these elements. And I think one thing that's been lost in Western civilization that I think postmodernism re has revitalized is this idea of the community. Um, and and this is where Erickson actually talks about this. I alluded to it at the beginning. Um, but Erickson talks about how postmodernism has brought back this idea of the community governing um, radical ideas. Where that falls apart, again, is in what if the community becomes radicalized and then the community says that these are the right things to do and then that just becomes a form of oppression within itself. I think of communism, Stalin, I think of Hitler, I think of Mao, I think of, again, all of those, those people we've already said multiple times. And, and those communities can turn. So again, you don't need postmodernism to have that because that's actually, that's actually even within the Old Testament is that the community governs itself. Uh, the community determines, uh, helps us based on a standard given to the community, what is right and wrong based on that standard. Uh, and so, um, again, Carl Truman talks about this in The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. But again, I, this is where I think that that's really important because, Randy, we hang out and my kids watch your kids, right? And, and they're observing how you parent. They're, mm-hmm. Your kids are observing how I parent. And within our community, we together are forming kids to think and reason and play and socialize and be the competent um, uh, uh, contributors to society we want them to be. Yep. And, and that's done in the community. 
Um, but I think within the 50s, 60s, and 70s, there was this idea, I don't need my grandparents. I'm going to go. I'm going to be autonomous. I'm going to get away from everybody. I'm going to push into this idea of I don't need my family. I don't need my community. I'm going to have my white picket fence, my, my wife and my two kids, and we're going to be fine on our own. And I think that that is uh, a problem. Um, and, mm-hmm. and that in and of itself is even a postmodern thought, right? I don't need anybody else because I'm my own king. Um, but uh, I think that it's, it's beneficial to remember that a, a lot of postmodernism generally introduces the community as a check and balance uh, to extremism. extremism. So, um, so that's the good. De-establishing uh, power and the use of language to a, a, a po- establish power and, and oppression over others. Um, the There was another one. What was the middle one? Sorry, I, I know you flipped um, pages here. The importance of story narrative yep. and then warning against scientism and reductionism that yeah. grew out of um, you know modernist ideas. Yeah. And then you have an introduction to the community or a reintroduction of the community. So those are the four things that we really see are benefits of, of postmodernism. <clears throat> However... Again, we want to be very clear. You don't need those things. You don't need postmodernism to have those things. Let me say that again. You don't need postmodernism to get to those four entities. You can find them in a myriad of different worldviews. So let's, uh, we got about 10 minutes here for you, Randy, because I know you got to get out of here because you have a day job. Uh, So (laughs) what, let's, let's unpack here in the last little bit. What are the bad and how do we move forward? Uh, well, the the bad, I, I guess, I'll, for the sake of brevity, I'd say there are two things. One, it's it's an incoherent philosophical position, and by that I mean it, it contradicts itself yeah. in, in a couple. That's a good a, a couple key ways. You, you called it the universal dissol- uh, dissolvent. Yeah, universal solvent, and it dissolves itself yes. in the process. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then, it's, uh, secondly, I think if it truly lived out, and, and no one does, and I'll give you an example, right. uh, it's unlivable. Yeah. So how do we move forward? We we reject postmodernism and its its central tenets, and we we operate based on what I would say is, is reality. So let me give an example, a couple examples of, of incoherence, and I'll I'll go quickly. Yeah. So um, for example, according to postmodernism, um, an item of language like a literary text does not have an authorial meaning, at least one that is accessible to interpreters. The author is in no privileged. I'm reading from Craig's text, page one thirty five. The author nice. is in no privileged position to interpret his own work. In fact, the meaning of, the, of a text is created by and resides in the community of readers. So, for example, there's no Book of Romans. There's a Lutheran, Catholic, and Marxist Book of Romans. Yeah. Here's the problem. Postmodern scholars will write articles making postmodern <laughs> statements and arguments, and they get mad and a little bit bent out of shape when you misinterpret their words. So they will argue out of one side of their mouth that, that you know, the author is not in any sort of privileged position, and then they will correct you when you misinterpret their work. By authoring an article. <laughs> and if you misinterpret it, they will correct you. So that's not what I meant. Yeah. And it's reflexive. It's instinctive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I just think that's so ridiculous. Like, like there are postmodern authors that are writing books saying in their books the written word has no, lang- no meaning. Uh, it just... Okay, so there's that. <laughs> yeah, it's in, in that way. It's kind of, you know, it, Craig says postmoderns, you know, appear to claim that their own assertions about the modern era, about how language and consciousness work, and so forth, are true and rational, and they write literary texts and protest when people misinterpret the authorial intent in their own writings. Yeah, so they purport to give us a, the real essence of what language is and how it works, 
And then, you know, they they do this self-refuting activity of, you know, saying this is true. This is the way it really is, even yeah. though it's truth is all socially constructed yeah. and relative. And right. So they say one thing, they behave another. Yeah. Because um, it's not tenable. This a- is not actions speak louder than words yep. and their actions. So that's that's yep. one, that's one way. Um, yep. Here's a fun, you know, another example. Um, yeah. So philosophically postmodernist, um, you know, reality is a social construction. So language creates reality, and what's real for one linguistic group may be unreal for another. So as Craig notes, page 133, the basic laws of logic are Western constructions, and in no way are they to be taken as universally valid laws of reality itself. So, you know, what's what's true could be culturally driven, it could be individually driven. So here are a couple of, you know, recent examples that came to mind. One would be, um, it's really, really current, is the World Cup. Yeah. It's going on right now. Yeah. Um, there's well, a, when you hear this, it's in January, so oh, it'll have been over. But yeah, yeah. So we don't know yeah. who the winner is. Um, <laughs> I'm, don't tell us. <laughs> so you have people from the West who you know very much are LGBTQ allies. Yep. They they want to wear these these rainbow Flags. armbands yep. or bring a rainbow flag yep. into the the soccer or football stadium. Yeah. In Thank ca- you. In, I don't know if it's Qatar, Qatar. I've heard both. Um, so I'll just say Qatar. I apologize yeah. if I'm saying that incorrectly. Yeah. Which is a Muslim country. Yep. An Eastern country. Yep. In which, um, you know, men engaged in same-sex behavior with each other. It's a three-year prison sentence I read. And, <laughs> and, and Quranically, they'd be justified under the Quran. I'm not saying I j- would support this in any way, shape, or form. But right. Quranically, uh, the death sentence could be prescribed and fit totally, totally within the, the moral confines of Islam. Yeah. Because in Islam... You don't separate the culture and society from the religion. The religion is everything. It yeah. supervenes on everything. It encompasses everything. And right. so you have people from the West going to the East to a Muslim country and imposing their Western views by mandating and arguing and, and yeah. demanding the yeah. right to bring these. Yeah. One guy ran under the pitch, you know, with the rainbow flag. I mean, just yep. it's this 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 disconnect. Yeah. You, you say it's all relative. Yeah. But you're trying to apply a universal in, yeah. in, in not your cultural context. Yeah. That's arguably intolerant based on the standards of <laughs> postmodernism. You've got J- <laughs> you've got J.K. Rowling, um, yeah, and um, more uh, more of a lightning rod. Dave, the, the, you know Dave Chappelle, yeah, uh, you know coming out and saying, "Look, I'm I'm a feminist, so I don't support trans rights because yeah. they see them as as incompatible." Yeah. Um, so there, it's it's feminism versus you know transphobia in yeah. the World Cup. It's you know the, it's the whole LGBTQ movement versus Islamophobia. Yeah, it's it's these these two um, you know yeah sort of progressive or postmodern. Hey, but that's okay, Randy, because football brings us all together, right? <laughs> Except for the people that hate soccer altogether, yeah. like I could care less if it never happened again. Yeah, right. Well, no, but you're you're touching on something really important. It goes even a step further. There, I I actually heard this morning on NPR that there's a Palestinian flag that's been ubiquitous throughout the entire... Yes. Uh, again, we're we're dating our time here, but Morocco just beat Spain. Yep, and they've right? a Palestinian spoiler flag. Spoiler alert, spoiler alert. Uh, but uh, it's hilarious because it's going to come out in January. Uh, but they flew a Palestinian flag, not a Moroccan flag. And so, but a Palestinian flag has no tie to any particular nation. And so people are like, but that's, so then that's just an identity character. So why is it wrong for the LGBTQ to fly their flag when FIFA is allowing the Palestinians to fly their Palestinian flags? And so there's this, again, there's this disconnect. And so people are getting mad and then people are, but people are allowing certain things. But again, if it's all relative, 
if it's all relative, we can't get mad at any of this. We cannot judge any of this as unethical in any way. Because, again, it's completely up to the the arbiter, the person, yeah. to determine what's right and wrong. They'll try. So this is yeah. in Gerthais' text, page 128. He notes that, um, he says, although postmodernists have no objective criteria by which to evaluate truth claims, they nevertheless make objective moral judgments in yeah. spite of themselves. So he yeah. says in... Um, in uh, he says, after the New York Times editorialized against postmodernism in the wake of the terrorist apocalypse of September 11th, 2001, yep. postmodernist Stanley Fish, who I mentioned earlier, claimed in an op-ed piece later in that same newspaper that his postmodern view did, in fact, allow him to make moral judgments against such acts. However, he admitted that he had no objective criteria by which to level such judgments and that none were available. So essentially, he's making moral judgments that are really just subjective assertions of his own viewpoint of, of, of what's what's valuable or true that yeah. are posited within his objective value vacuum. Right. Um, so it's he can say I don't like it and it, right. this is wrong, but he he even he acknowledges like there's no objective criteria by which by which to do so, and so right. it that's why I think it's 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 unlivable. You end yeah. up with with the law of the jungle. Might right. makes right. Right. You know who's who's right here, him right. or or the, the, the terrorists, and yeah. the terrorists thought they were doing a, a moral good. Right. He thinks they're doing a moral wrong. Who wins? Who's the arbiter? There's right. no objective standard. Right. And that's that's unlivable. I mean, how do you how do you condemn racism, female genital mutilation, rape, child abuse, murder, right. any of those things if they're if your culture says they're good? Um, maybe your culture, maybe your country didn't sign a human rights treaty. Maybe yeah, you're you know it's it, the, again these are even th- that idea of human rights. Where does that standard come from? Why do we need where where do human rights come from? Because there's no objective reality for there to be rights for individuals. Well, to, to have that, you'd have to have a meta narrative. Yeah, you have to have this idea, yes. like an overarching sort of reality that you know, for example, human beings are made in the image of God, yes. and therefore have intrinsic value, worth, and dignity. Yes, but they reject meta narratives. Now, here's here's the unlivo- other unlivable part. Um, to say that there are no meta narratives is, in fact, to posit a meta meta narrative itself about yeah. the way reality is. <laughs> yes, it's sort of like saying there is no such thing as truth. That's a truth claim. Yeah. So it's self defeating because yeah. if if it's true, then it defeats itself, and if yeah. it's false, then yeah, then there is truth out there. So right. it's it it does these things where it 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 speaks out of both sides of its mouth. Right. You know, authors have no meaning, but then they'll object when you misinterpret them. There are no you know meta narratives are all oppressive. But yet, you know, the claim that all meta narratives are oppressive is itself a meta narrative or yeah. a large scale explanation of reality. Yeah. It decries moral wrongdoing, but acknowledges there's no objective basis on which to do so. Right. And for that reason, I think it ought to be rightly rejected. But that's what's at the heart of a lot of the conflict that we see. It's yeah. truth is left, you know, it's to quote Oprah, what's your truth? Yeah. Um, so it's it's left to the interpreter, it's left to the individual or Absolutely. a culture. Yeah. Um, it depends on, I guess, on the, how grand the sense of community is or the individual yeah. Yeah. autonomy is, as yeah. you mentioned earlier. Yeah. But either in the individual or the culture or both define what's true. Yeah. And so if that's the case, we're all kings and queens of our own point land. Right. And, you know, it's, it's who's to say that my view of what's right and wrong shouldn't involve dominating or, yeah. or subjugating another person. That, right. that, that's not my view. But what, it, what do you do if that is someone's view? Right. Um, there's a problem because that's their view and they're entitled to it and you're entitled to yours. And Absolutely. you might say, well, they should just respect each other. Well, that's right. your view Yeah, that we should respect each other. What if that's not their view? Right. Um, that's why it's the law of the jungle. It's yeah, Lord of the flies ends yep. up becoming a reality and might makes right. And we've seen that play out and it, it only ends in what has become yep. the most uh, bloody century 
uh, of the, the, the 20th century. And that's, that's not idle speculation. I mean, I'm moral philosophers and historians and many, many, many scholars have recognized, like, that's where that path leads. If there is no object, and some say, so be it, fine. I mean, Nietzsche embraced, mm-hmm. embraced, uh, that's why he was a nihilist. He, he understood that that's where that leads, but, yeah. but so be it. That's where we are. Yeah. Um, he, so um, it's not just idle speculation to say, like, if you have nothing objective, you end up with the law of the jungle. Well, what's holding society together? Well, mutual self-interest. Yeah. Pragmatism. Yep. But, you know, but the moment you that can break down. Yeah. And because the, the moment you no longer are a benefit to me, I'm going to do away with you. So because right? you have no value. So. So what's the answer? I'll, I'll wrap up with this. Here's a quote from Chesterton. I love this. And uh, you mentioned triangle. So now I have to read this. <laughs> Perfect. Um, this idea of absolute liberation, this idea of autonomy, this idea of I get to define reality from from Planned Parenthood versus Casey and, and just postmodern event in general. Um, here's what Chesterton says in his wonderful work, Orthodoxy. He says, if you draw a giraffe, you must draw him with a long neck. If, in your bold, creative way, you hold yourself free to draw a giraffe with a short neck, you will really find that you, have not, that you are not free to draw a giraffe. The moment you step into the world of facts, you step into a world of limits. Mm. Do not go about as a, as a demagogue, encouraging triangles to break out of the prison of their three sides. If a triangle breaks out of its three sides, its life comes to a lamentable end. Mm. But I love that line. The moment yeah. you step into a world of facts... And friends, we inhabit a world of facts. Yes. You step into a world of limits. Yes. And that's where I think postmodernisms, that's that's the reason to reject it. There is a world of facts. There is a reality. There is objective truth. Yeah. Um, there are laws of logic that are yes. universally a- a- applicable. Yes. Um, you know, certainly send us questions if you want to talk further about that. We could yeah. do a whole separate podcast on the laws of logic. The laws of logic <laughs> and how if, if you try and and counter them or argue against them, you'll end up using them yeah. <laughs> to to critique them. You'll end up using the very thing you deny to make yeah. the argument. Exactly. But th- these are not Western ideas. These are these are universal ideas. They're yeah. they're not even unique to Christianity per se. No. You'd find them from well, from from Muslim and, yeah. and Jewish theologians alike. Yeah, and uh, really quickly, and even, from the Greeks too. Yeah, even William Lane Craig says that. That this is not um, uh, Christianity does not have a particular form of truth. It does not have a particular truth because if it did, there'd be no way to judge whether or not Christianity was true if it had its own particular form of truth. And that's the importance here is, is that truth is outside of the Bible because it allows us to say of the Bible if something is actually true. And so what's beautiful about this is uh, again, and there are limits to our understanding, and that's another thing that comes from postmodernism, is that there are limits to our ideas. There are limits to our understanding. But again, you don't need postmodernism to understand that humans are limited in our understanding. And so this is, again, where, uh, Randy, I love what you're saying. We, are in a, we inhabit a world of facts. We inhabit a world of, lim- of limitations. And you cannot, freedom is, uh, freedom is not just to do whatever you feel and want to do. Freedom is only free when you have choices within boundaries. Because if I chose to bomb a school of kids, I have the ability to do that, but it is wrong. And postmodernism would say there's nobody who should tell me that that's wrong. And it is absolutely vehemently wrong to do that, to take innocent